I think when we first started Sun Edison, the companies that we sold solar to said, yeah, this makes a lot of financial sense. We should do it. And then when they talked to the CFO, the CFO would say, wait a second, you know, I need that money to build a new store or I need that money to build a new, you know, factory or a new line or whatever it is that they're building. Right. And so, no, you cannot have the money to do solar, even though it makes sense. And we found this happening over and over again. And what we realized is if you actually said, look, I'll give it to you for free, but you just pay me the electricity bill, you would have paid your utility company and and we'll give you a 1% discount. They said, oh, well, that's easy. If I don't have to go to my CFO for money, then I can sign that operating agreement. Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk podcast. My name is Olubumi Olajde. And thank you so much for joining us again this week. I am so excited to introduce our guest for this episode. His name is Jigo Shaw and he is the co-founder of Generate Capital. And he's also the co-host of the Energy Gang, which is the largest energy podcast in the world. So today we're going to be talking about a few topics or focus on two main points. First is financing green energy projects, especially in developing countries. And the second is the job creation aspect of the clean energy industry and how it's going to need more people and what the role especially young people are going to play in the clean energy industry especially given the challenges due to covid and the energy transition that is shaping up in very different ways it's quite amazing to be having someone like jigger on the podcast i've listened to him quite a lot over the last year and a half especially and to have someone like him on the podcast i think it just indicates how much we've grown so uh without Without any further ado, let's jump into the conversation to learn more about Jigo, the work he's doing, and to talk about the important talking points we have for this episode. So I hope you enjoy this and we'll see you again at the end. I started in the energy space in 1995 working for Astropower, which was a solar manufacturing company, as an intern over the summer. And I've been hooked on solar power ever since. I read my first book on solar when I was 16 years old, so in 1989, and just fell in love with it from the first time. And you know, as I continued through my career working for BP and then working for Energetics, which was the Department of Energy here in the United States, and then founding Sun Edison, I've just found that the community is such a great community and it's such a vibrant entrepreneurial community. And at this point, I think I've worked with probably like 40 different countries promoting solar power from, you know, Qatar to the UAE to Mongolia and Brazil. So it's been, it's been quite a ride. I sold Sun Edison in 2009, did some nonprofit work with Richard Branson at the Carbon War Room. And then started Generate Capital, which is where I'm president today. I co-founded Generate Capital with two partners in 2014. I think it's very interesting because your your career path has been very unconventional because you started out as an engineer. And what was the primary motivations that uh, took you to the different paths that you took during your career? Well, I mean, as, as most folks know, electricity in general has been made by burning something, <laughs> creating steam. And then turning a turbine, right? So like, I mean, the steam engine is alive and well today from, you know, 200 years ago. And, you know, solar power was uniquely interesting because it's the only thing really that doesn't spin. They actually, you know, as a semiconductor and, and, you know, as an engineer, I find that fascinating, right? And so, so that's, I think, really what inspired me to begin with. And then obviously, 
as I got older and got more educated, certainly climate change and some of these other topics have also weighed on me. I think this ties perfectly into generate capital and what exactly you do there. Because I think this is uh, just out of everything you learned throughout your career path, this has been like the the attribute of everything. So um, what is generate capital and what does the organization, what problems does the organization try to solve? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, generate capital is an investment in an operating company. And the operating company part of it is super important, right? When you think about what we do, we take a lot of the lessons that I learned and many others have learned since the 2003 founding of Sun Edison. You know, we had a long journey on how to take solar and actually make it a bankable asset class that investment banks want to invest in uh, across the world. And in fact, I would say that we didn't actually reach this investment asset class for solar until around 2015, 2016 for utility scale projects. And then 2018 for residential solar projects, right? And so it took almost you know 13 years to to help make solar into an acceptable asset class. So when you think about what Generate Capital does, is it finds the leading edge of sustainable investing around fuel cells or in electric vehicles, around anaerobic digesters, renewable natural gas, right? Community solar. All of these technologies are technologies where the technology actually is well proven. In fact, most of the technology has been around for 20 plus years, but the capital markets and and the financing community has not yet gotten comfortable with the technology. And that's where Generate, I think, really does a great job. And the operating company part of what we do, which is really maintaining the assets, is the most critical portion of this. I just want to go back to the the model that you used at the company you founded at Sun Edison because I think this is the the same problem that many developing countries are faced right now when it comes to developing solar mini grid projects specifically, and I'm referring mainly to Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the region I'm most familiar with. So I just want you to talk about the the model that that you really use for the company and how it proved that it to be a successful model going forward in the few years that the company was going on in the early stages. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, basically, you know, I think when we first started Sun Edison, the companies that we sold solar to said, yeah, this makes a lot of financial sense. We should do it. And then when they talked to the CFO, the CFO would say, wait a second, you know, I need that money to build a new store or I need that money to build a new, you know, factory or a new line or whatever it is that they're building. Right. And so, no, you cannot have the money to do solar, even though it makes sense. And we found this happening over and over again. And what we realized is if you actually said, look, I'll give it to you for free, but you just pay me the electricity bill, you would have paid your utility company and and we'll give you a 1% discount. They said, oh, well, that's easy. If I don't have to go to my CFO for money, then I can sign that operating agreement very quickly. right?" And that is really what we invented at Sun Edison. And by 2007, 2008, we were actively lobbying the government of South Africa because at the time, remember, they were trying to build these two coal plants, which have now become quite expensive. And they were saying, well, there's no reason. Why would we as a poor country accept solar? It doesn't make any sense. And we said, well, because it's actually not that expensive. And in fact, it would be much cheaper. We you know, didn't win the argument really until 2009. But by the time we won it, the auction results came in far cheaper than they thought. And they had a requirement for you know, there to be black money as well that got invested into the into the projects and, you know, many other things. And they said, oh, because of all these requirements, we're sure that you won't be able to get cheaper capital. And in fact, by 2011, I'd say that we had already proven that solar was cheaper than new coal in South Africa. 
And today, I would say everybody knows that it's cheaper than uh, new coal or even old coal in South Africa. So I do believe that that model has has been successful around the world. I want to touch more on this South Africa example that you mentioned, because I think many times when people talk about solar specifically, there's this, they always approach the argument from a, from a climate change perspective and talk about the effects on the environment. But a lot of the things that you've done and a lot of things that you continue to do right now is to make the, the economics case and, and the financial case for how viable these products are in comparison to the alternatives that, they, that they're out there. And I think this is just a very interesting one to just make that there is a, there's a strong financial case for, for going to clean energy solutions over conventional methods like coal for example in South Africa which which right now they are they're really stuck in that in that rut if, if, if you can say it that way yeah I think that's right I think the other thing I would say is that in in you know I've worked a lot in uh, East Africa but also in you know like Namibia Ghana and what you find is is that in general the biggest problem is is that is that the utility company actually doesn't want to serve the entire population Right, that they have convinced themselves with their World Bank colleagues that it's actually too expensive to extend the grid to provide power to everybody. And you see that in like, for instance, in Cameroon, where they tried to build La Pangor and they said, Hey, you know, the people who are connected to the grid will have power at 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Obviously, the French industry will get four cents a kilowatt hour and will remain sixty percent of the, you know, the rural areas will not have any power. And you know, one of the things that I think solar has done quite well throughout the continent is is convinced the governments that, in fact, that there are private entrepreneurs who are willing to work outside of the utility and provide microgrids directly to to villages. And in fact, villages have signed up in quite good numbers to you know to connect their homes and pay a connection charge to connect their homes to the grid, right? And so I think part of Part of the interesting power dynamic, I would say, in the continent is this fight between the utilities who say it cannot be done and the entrepreneurs that are saying that we're doing it now issue us a utility license. This is actually very, very fascinating because it, it just in the case of Sub-Saharan Africa, the Sub-Saharan African region alone, there's been a huge boom of, of solar mini-grid projects that are, that are attractive financing, even, even, even with the current climate. And especially when you're considering that most of the places that these projects do go up in. There's not a lot of, of commercial activity. I guess that's that that's a term that's used a lot, but still it's still showing a lot of promise in the way that it's shifting the way governments think about it. And I think right now governments are starting to play a more of an active role in the development of those kind of projects, but it's still in the early stages. As compared to countries like the US, where most of your operations are based in, how how does that dynamic look? As how is it different? Well, I think it's you have to remember, of course, that you know when you work in places like India or places like Brazil or places like South Africa or other places, you will always have the local issues, right, that are on top of the clean energy issues, right? So clean energy has its own issues, but the local issues also are quite important, right? So the question is, how do you invest in a project that will take 20 years to pay back in a country, right? You know, the way that it has happened in the past with, let's say, Anji, you know, or some of these other companies is that they say, look, we run a natural gas plant or we run a coal plant or we run a hydro dam. And if you don't pay us, then we will shut off the power. Right. And, you know, that's not as easy to do for a solar and wind facility. And so the question then becomes like, you know, how do you finance these types of technologies with infrastructure dollars? 
And largely, I would say that that means that you have to work with the World Bank, you have to work with the IFC, you have to work with the African Development Bank, you have to work with ARENA, you have to work with all of these players, right? Power Africa, et cetera. And I would say a large portion of the developed country developers, right? The folks in the US or Europe are not actually experts in using all of that money. And so they get quite confused and quite concerned about the risk, even though there are many uh, ways to solve these risks. I would say much of the innovative money is really coming from the Middle East, I would say, and from Singapore, and less from you know the U.S. You mentioned doing projects in the Middle East earlier, and countries like in the UAE, for example, they've invested very heavily in, in, in solar projects like utility-scale solar and also in nuclear energy. And that is the trend as the Middle East continues to diversify their energy portfolio because I think they see it, even though a large part of their energy production still relies on the fossil fuel industry, they are taking very massive steps into the into the next stage. And obviously, obviously, you could say that they have the capital to do so and they have leeway, but how do you see that play out? Well, I mean, I think that nuclear power has been um, successful for a long time. I think the problem with nuclear power, as you know, is that the traditional nuclear power plant designs have become quite expensive to build. And so what you find is, is that, in fact, many of the nuclear power plants even being built in China, which is known for its ability to just you know, push through any, any and all risks, have found themselves to be quite a bit above budget and been slow to deploy on time, right? And so one of the things that I think that the the UAE has done well is they've you know worked with Kepco, the Korean Electric Power Corporation, and my sense is is that you know they have done a pretty good job, but the cost of those reactors have come in, you know, generally over budget, and they have been you know delayed in terms of being brought online. I think that the first reactor and the UAE really has been brought online finally in August of 2020, which you know took a long time since it was first awarded in 2013. And so I think that it is, it is something that for many countries around the world is quite difficult to access because the engineering and the turnkey nature of nuclear has been quite poor. But there's a tremendous amount of innovation occurring now with small modular reactors. And so I assume that by 2025 or so, you will see a lot more nuclear being looked at within the continent of Africa. Whereas today, I would say it's really only a few countries who are able to access it. It's interesting you mentioned that because Ghana is also going ahead with their own um, nuclear power program to build their first um, nuclear power plant. I mean, they have a research reactor, but now they're looking into the utility scale. And another thing that I'd just like to bring up, in the case of South Africa, and I think Poland also serves as a good example of this, where they they still choose to develop the, the coal industry ahead of, of renewable energy sources. There is this there is this idea of energy security really playing into those decisions and the need to develop local industries. But this this leads into another conversation of what is the job creation prospect for the clean energy space in terms of how how can it really develop uh, the country and create jobs, especially for young people. Because I think it's mainly the younger generation that are getting those kind of jobs and especially in the entrepreneurial space in the renewable energy sector. So I just want to hear your opinion about that because there is still an argument being made about energy security still driving the push for coal in some places. Yeah, I think that, as you know, I mean... 
Coal is an outdated technology, right? So, I mean, if you look at the projects in South Africa, but also the projects in Sri Lanka, for instance, you know, they have basically been written down to zero the moment that they were turned on, right? The moment that they were completed. And so the, the private markets now believe that those coal plants are worth zero. So whether the South African government wants to push forward or whether the Sri Lankan government wants to push forward, which they've not, at the end of the day, from a financial point of view, it has been a huge problem for the government of South Africa because the private markets, the banks around the world, have determined that those coal plants are now worth zero dollars. So I think that's point number one. I think point number two, though, is that when you look at the African continent, you're talking about almost 1.3 billion people, right? And it is a large group of people, many of whom, you know, do not have access to reliable electricity, right? So they may be connected to electricity, but they're not connected to reliable electricity. And the ability of the African continent to build north-south transmission lines which ARENA and others have been pushing for, has also been quite difficult. Frankly, they have not been able to build north-south rail infrastructure, let alone transmission lines. And so I think that when you think about this sort of green jobs and local movement, I think there's a few pieces. One is that the, the beautiful thing about clean energy technologies is that the young people can be trained on how to do it in less than a year. And so you generally don't need people that have PhDs to operate most of these technologies. In general, most people actually with a basic you know, secondary school education can actually be trained over a 12-month period of time to work in the industry. So I think that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is that the financing for these can be done by local families and local banks. So most of the projects are less than $10 million, And so you can actually do things at a local level which you cannot do with a large coal plant. You cannot do it without the World Bank or some of those other entities. And only the people who are the most connected people going to Davos can actually access that money. I would say the third thing is the sheer numbers of jobs that we're creating are massive, right? So just to provide the Green New Deal in the African continent, we would need probably 100 million people to be working for the next 10 to 15 years to really catch up and build up all this infrastructure. And then you would need something on the order of around 20 million people for the next 30, 40 years to maintain that infrastructure. So it's quite a large job creator. I mean, something on the order of around 8% of all people in the African continent could be working in clean energy. So I don't think this is a small thing, but that's not true if you're doing coal. If you're doing coal, it's a few thousand people that get jobs. And it's not a hundred million, especially when it comes to terms of, uh, as you mentioned, as well, actually starting the companies. Because in in Nigeria alone, my my home country, I, I know a lot of people out of school started their own solar companies or renewable energy companies, and just the accessibility and I think the openness of the space as well, especially when you compare it to something like the oil and gas sector, requires large, large uh, upfront investments and a, a lot of connections and and political in- interventions and geopolitics. There's just it's just very difficult to find something that that really compares to the accessibility that the renewable energy sector is really bringing into the continent. Yeah, I think that's right. I think also, I mean, the continent is quite addicted even now to to diesel generators, right? I mean, diesel generators are everywhere. And the cost of bringing diesel to many of those diesel generators is quite expensive and quite deadly. And in general, I would say that the the cost of that electricity is probably, you know, at best 30 cents per US per kilowatt hour and at worst 
a dollar a kilowatt hour. And so, you know, today the solutions provided by solar and other technologies is quite a bit more cost effective. Mm. And uh, I guess now just to focus on on just the, the role of young people here, and uh, I first I want to talk about the podcast, The Energy Gang, which which I listen to almost religiously at this point. What was the motivation behind that? Because I, I don't think I know that story. Uh, so in case the listeners don't know, Jigger is the co-host on The Energy Gang podcast. Uh, you should check it out if you don't already. And I, I just want to know, how did that come about? And what, what was really the problem that you guys were trying to address with the podcast? Yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, I think that one of the things that we find is that there's a lot of news in the clean energy space, right? There's a lot of news on, you know, green tech media or PV tech or many other websites. But what you find is, is that the actual like why and how is missing from the news, right? So if you're a developer, it's one thing to say, oh, my competition has signed a contract over here with this particular group. It's another thing to understand how they signed that contract and why the state or the city or the country signed a contract with that developer, right? And that I think is even the more educational portion is what's the how and the why behind the news. And that's really why we started the Energy Gang podcast. And I think that's the unique role that I play on the podcast is to, to provide some of this pulling back of the curtain and really explaining to people, you know, this is, you know, some of the dirty secrets and this is how this kind of stuff works. Just to uh, touch more on that. I think very, very interestingly, the way the energy sector is kind of set up. When I got out of school in 2018, I started learning about things because my degree was in petroleum engineering, so I didn't know anything about anything else besides petroleum engineering. I had to learn about climate change after I got out of school and then the role of renewable energy and all these things. So it, it was it was quite new to me. So finding the information I felt was very difficult at first until I found podcasts. And then there was just a huge throw of information. And that really got me thinking of how differently the, the energy sector is kind of developing as compared to something like tech, for instance, especially the way they, they attract people and the way it presents themselves as uh as, as just an industry. And I think that that accessibility factor is something that is still not where it needs to be, at least from my opinion. I'd like to hear from you as well. Yeah, I think the accessibility is not where it needs to be. But I think that this is what we are all embarking on going into next year, right? So when you think about the Green Deal in Europe and the Green New Deal in the US and the work that they're doing in Australia through the Sun Cable, where they're trying to build it to Singapore and many other initiatives, I think part of the goal here is start to realize that you know this is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime and that the places of higher education need to put in place curriculum to really train people um, in college and university about how to do all of this work and i do believe that you know what podcasting and you know the news media and others will continue to do is to provide people with additional learning along the way about you know really you know how does one get the permission to build a power plant? How does one figure out how to do this, that, and the other? But I think that, you know, there's no replacing the formal education process. And interestingly, building on that, I think, especially for the for the role of young people, I found that a lot of people right now, I think the, the climate protests played a very large role, very interested in the topic of climate change. Because initially, I thought that if you're interested in climate change, then you have to be interested in energy. But that isn't necessarily true all the time. And I find that people who are very uh, interested in, in addressing climate change don't really um, know too much about the, the energy space. And I, I I know that there's there's that disconnect that you spoke of about information being passed around, but is this something that you see? Did you see there's just one community or do you think it's two, two communities that kind of similar that kind of addressing the same goals? 
Yeah, no, exactly. I think that, that look, climate change is much bigger than energy. Um, energy is a central portion of it, but climate change is much bigger than energy. And so not all climate activists obviously are obsessed with energy. But I do think energy plays a really quite a large role. And in general, I think people desire energy, right? Energy is basically what provides people with a modern lifestyle. And so the question really becomes is how do you provide that level of modern lifestyle, right? People want access to laptops and cell phones and they want, you know, refrigerators and electricity and all the things that you get. And I think part of the conversation has to be, look, how do we help people continue to reach their own personal goals while reducing carbon emissions? And I do think that energy plays a unique role in answering that question. And so while I understand why people have been, you know, interested in protesting and interested in, you know, doing that part of it, but not necessarily understanding energy, I do think that as, as we move forward, understanding energy will be critical to really understanding how we actually stave off the worst impacts of climate change. Just to build on that about the role of young people, and especially when it comes to energy, uh, I found like across many sectors, n- n- not just the renewable energy space, uh, it, it seems like the energy industry is becoming less and less, less attractive to to people coming out of school to want to go into. Uh, I, it, it's, it's something that I try to encourage a lot of people, especially with the podcast, about how they can find like unique challenges in, in the energy space that, that they can get passionate about and want to address. And I feel like that is one thing, like people, people aren't really um, aware of kind of problems that they can see themselves solving. And I feel like it's not very well communicated. And you have a lot more exposure to people not just from um, from the podcast, but also from hiring from other companies you've worked at. And so how do you see this dynamic playing out for people being interested in working in the industry specifically to address challenges? Well, I think the word energy sometimes turns people off, right? So, you know, I certainly understand that. But I think that when we talk about energy, we're talking about community, right? We're talking about life. And so when you think about like, for instance, I'm a big donor to, you know, sort of this effort around providing solar suitcases, right? And, you know, there are a lot of people in rural Uganda where I've done a lot of work where the where the clinics are providing, like, are, they're delivering babies via cell phone light, right? The, 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 the nonprofit's called We Care Solar, right? And so they sell a solar suitcase that actually provides, you know, local health care. And there have been thousands and almost 100,000 babies that have now been born below these sort of solar suitcases. And they have all of the extra tools needed to deal with complicated pregnancies and complicated births, such that they've been able to save the lives of many mothers as a result, right? And so, so sometimes it's not really talking about energy, but talking about healthcare, right? And talking about maternal care and talking about what energy allows you to do. It's like Amory Lovins in the U.S. has talked about before is like people don't want to talk about energy or electricity. They want to talk about cold beer. And <laughs> and so like, you know, sometimes it's talking about what access to energy and what a abundance of energy allows people to do. That is very, very powerful because I think uh, messaging obviously plays a very, very huge role in that. And you 
you've been through quite a bit of phases in your career. So I think just going back to your to your early stages, how have your motivations really adapted in relations to the energy sector? And what were the earlier motivations and how has it matured right now? So what really motivates you to keep working in the sector? Well, I think as we talked about before, I mean, I think what really motivated me to get in the sector originally was just my fascination with solar PV, right? I was just you know, taken by the fact that you could make electricity without burning something and making steam, right? And so, so I think that's how I entered the space. I mean, clearly today, I would say that it's not really uh, about that, that that motivates me, although that does continue to, you know, motivate me somewhat. I would say that the bigger thing now is figuring out all the things that solar can do, right? There have been over a billion people around the world who don't have access to electricity or have access to infrequent electricity. And probably that number is probably close to 1.5 billion. And I think that we have now proven definitively that we are a much cheaper and more humane way of doing that than diesel or than grid extension. And so, you know, I think it gives me great joy to see how many people around the world have been connected to solar power. I think separately though, what gives me great joy is the empowerment of local communities, right? The fact that whether it's a residential homeowner or a community can now power their whole community with solar power and they can say to the, you know, sort of political uh, leaders that, hey, we don't need to wait for you, that we can do this ourselves. I mean, it's just inspiring. And it's not just here in the African continent. It's also in the U.S. I mean, there are places in the U.S. where the electric utility company is promising to connect people to the grid in two years' time. And people are saying, but I need to be connected now. And they're able to go with a microgrid today and connect themselves without waiting for the utility company. I mean, that level of empowerment was not really available 10 years ago. Yeah, definitely. And right now, there are people in very different situations because right now I'm I'm actually based in Qatar in the Middle East. And when you talk about the energy sector, people still largely assume you're talking about the oil and gas space because that is what energy plays out really in the region as a majority. So what are your thoughts on, on people looking to get into different different sectors, specifically around energy, um, oil and gas sector, the nuclear sector, and how do they um, really address challenges that really take us to a sustainable energy future because i think right now there's a huge um there's a huge gap in conversation that we, we know we need to transition away from all these fuels but what what happens while they're still there what role can young people really play in really getting those sectors to to the next stage i just want to hear from you as well how how do other sectors really play into this conversation and what role can young people really look at them in terms of being part of the energy transition and fighting for a low carbon future Yeah, well, I think that it's very clear that the national oil companies will be pumping out oil and gas for a very long time, right? So the world is not ending its use of oil and gas next week. It is slowly reducing its use of oil and gas over the next 30 years or 40 years, right? So there will be careers for young people to go into in oil and gas for the next, you know, like few years, next uh, few decades, right? I think that I myself enjoyed my time at BP greatly and learning about the oil and gas industry greatly. So I think that it's important for people to not demonize oil and gas companies, but instead to demonize oil and gas use, right? There should be no need for us to burn diesel for electricity. There should be no need for us to, you know, have low efficiency vehicles, et cetera. We should be able to move to electric vehicles. And so I think what we are increasingly seeing around the world is people are banning the use of oil and gas for many mainstream 
applications, which then is, of course, leading to a reduction in the in the use of oil and gas over time. And I think that the the integrated oil companies, not the national oil companies, but the integrated ones like BP and Shell and others, are learning that what they really are is an engineering company with 75,000 engineers. And what they really need to do is to learn how to use their engineering prowess to help bring about the decarbonization of the world. And so I think that's hugely valuable. And, you know, I think young people should look at that. But in the end, if young people want to make their fortunes and young people want to figure out how to be part of an industry that they'll be able to be proud to be a part of for 40, 50 years, then I think that's clearly going to be in the decarbonization side. But I don't begrudge people, young people, for starting in the oil and gas industry. And I do think that Qatar and others realize that they're burning their own product, right? They're using their own gas that they could be selling to someone else to burn internally, which doesn't make any sense because solar is cheaper than gas. And so they could be producing, making solar and then selling that gas to someone else and making more money. And the Saudis and the UAE, I think, see the same. So, so I do think that that change is coming. And I do think that we have peaked in terms of global oil production in 2019. And so I think the, the real question is how we continue to put in place policies that force people to replace things that are wearing itself out with decarbonized versions, right? So that when a diesel generator reaches its end of life, it doesn't get replaced with another diesel, but instead gets replaced by a zero carbon solution. I have two final questions to kind of wrap up this interview. So the first is you mentioned about the Green New Deal. And I, I think this has been, at least from the time that I've started observing, observing the climate and energy space, this, this has really been the time when a lot of policy um, works have really come to the forefront. I think most notably we had the Paris Agreement and the Green New Deal from the U.S. And it's spreading out very rapidly into the sectors that they're looking at. Especially, I think COVID has really shown people how how you can really address some of the pollution concerns, especially with cars on the roads and transportation and all that. And people and people see that you can actually take actions towards driving towards solutions. So, what's what international developments do you see as playing a major role as as as, as these two policy frameworks in the future as well? And what what else do you think people should be looking out for in terms of just looking at the forecast for the sector? Yeah, well, the forecast is clearly bright. I mean, the Europeans have already set their course on a green deal. And I think the Chinese have also said that their next five-year plan will be quite large. And the Japanese have just recently announced that they'll be 100% net zero as well. So I think the forecast is quite bright. I think the, the, the real challenge is to figure out what the national leadership in the African continent wants to do. I mean, the beauty of clean energy is you don't need leadership by the US or Russia or China to make this happen, that in fact, African entrepreneurs can make this happen on their own. The technology is widely available and even the capital is becoming more widely available. So the real question is, is that do they want to be part of US and European development companies and initiatives like Enercity, for instance, in Ghana or others, or do you want to do things that are African homemade? Right, And there are many examples of the, those companies that are successful as well. And you know, I, to me, I think this is uh, a race where really almost any country in the world can participate in this race and succeed. I think it's really more about focus and prioritization, not about you know, special access to capital or special access to you know, like sort of oil reserves or whatnot. I think you know, every country in the continent of Africa can show leadership here. 
And as a final question, right now you've really polished your message and you, you really know what problems you're trying to address with Generate Capital and with San Edison in the past. And you've gone through a lot of different stages in your career. But if you had to go back and to, you had to meet yourself in the, in the first two years of, your, of when you got out of school and you started your first job, what advice would you give yourself um, right now in terms of the energy sector and how to really look at a career in energy and what challenges you should be looking at as the major ones to try to prepare yourselves for and try to address in the next um, 10, 20 years? Well, honestly, I think it's the same advice I give people today, right? Is that, you know, you know, how do you eat an elephant, right? The answer is sort of like one bite at a time, right? <laughs> and, and I think that the same thing is true here, right? Like, I think that the, the, you know, the energy industry is a huge behemoth. And if you're trying to change the entire energy industry, you will most certainly fail. Right. So I think the goal is to figure out how to solve one portion of the energy business, right? The portion for your village or the portion for your state or the portion for your country or, you know, clean drinking water, you know, tied to solar, right? Like net zero water, right? And so there are a lot of these, these solutions. And I think people have to stay within their sphere of influence and solve the problem that they see locally that they can most tackle. And then once they succeed at that, you will be graduated up to be given the right to, to solve something larger. And then once you've succeeded at that, you can graduate up and solve something larger. And that's what I've done in my career, right? I mean, when I first started Sun Edison, I had no dreams that I'd have this level of impact on the world, right? I think that the level of impact I expected was that we would be able to do you know, 10 to $20 million worth of solar per year. I think I had my original business plan still. And, you know, we ended up beating it by, by 20 X, right. But like, but you know, it was quite an adventure. Right. And so I think that you don't set aside, you don't set out on the adventure to change the entire energy industry. I think you set out on the adventure to change some small portion of the energy industry, and then you end up changing the world. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Energy Talk podcast. And I don't know if you could tell, but I was very excited during this interview. And I really had a great time speaking with Jigger and talking about the topics we did. Honestly, it's quite a dream come true. So thank you for joining me this week. Don't forget to share it with a friend or colleague. If you did like the podcast, we'd really appreciate to leave us a rating or review so it reach more people. And as an extra bonus, everybody who stayed towards the end, we have a special announcement for a new program we're running. So we're going to be launching a series of interviews with young people who are doing really ama amazing stuff in the energy sector. In this episode, we talked a bit about the role of young people and how important they are to get engaged in energy. And we're going to start our own small effort to really show you what young people can do and show you the potential of the problem solving there is in this space. So our first episode in the segment we're calling My Energy Story features a Rhodes Scholar from Australia who just started her master's degree in energy systems engineering at the University of Oxford. We'll be hearing about her story, how she won the Rhodes Scholarship, and how she's embarking on the next year of her scholarly adventures in Oxford. So um, I'm going to play a clip from that segment, and then at the time when this episode is up, you should be able to watch the episode on our YouTube channel, which is The Energy Talk. So yeah, let's listen to the clip, and as always, have a lovely day. I was so close to dropping out and moving back to physiotherapy. <laughs> I was so lucky that my older brother is an engineer 
he was able to tell me, don't be silly, Grace, you know. And he actually gave me really good advice that what you do at university is really sometimes very different to what you do in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so his advice was just go out there and do as many internships as you can. Then you'll realise what it's really like rather than just turning up to a lecture and listening to some theoretical stuff. So I think that would be my advice, really just try and get out there, do some internships. It can be really hard to get sometimes, but, you know, just when you ask someone, the worst they can say is no. You know, even if you ask them, can I have a tour of your plant? Can I come and, you know, shadow someone for a week? Or can I do a project? You know, can I do my thesis for you? Or something to get out there in the workforce and just see what it's like.